Well, good morning. Ah, oh, y'all sound a little off. Good morning. Oh, thank you. I feel welcome now. What a great day. Uh, I love what Courtney said. You know, last week was Easter. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. But guess what? Today's the week after Easter, and hallelujah, Christ is still risen. Hallelujah. So our Lord lives and reigns over all things, and he proved that through what he went through on our behalf. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. It's so good to have you here. We are working our way through an Easter series called The Case for Christ. Now, um, I looked this morning. It is officially out of the local theaters, so it has gone by the way. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't get it. Wait just a little while. It'll show up on one of your TV providers, and then it'll be out in DVD, Blu-ray, all that good stuff. So it'll be there for you to have. Um, this week, actually, last week when we were together, Easter Sunday, uh, we showed Lee Strobel's personal testimony connected to the movie that has been made from his life story. Uh, this Sunday, what I thought we would do is we would actually kind of drop back and actually look at the evidence that led to him putting his trust in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, whether you realize it or not, there is a historical basis to this thing called Christianity. It's not just pie in the sky and the great by and by. Woo, I hope we all go to heaven someday. Oh, no, 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 no. It is grounded in historical fact. And we're going to look at some of that together this morning. Uh, Lee Strobel wrote a, a quite a complete book on these facts. And I won't begin to say we're going to dent this much this morning. So I do want to hold up his book as an opportunity for you to go uh, more in depth with it. Uh, my goals this morning are a little less lofty than giving you all that information. All I want to do today is I want to ask three questions. Question number one that we're going to explore together is, was there a historic person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who actually lived? Question number one. Question number two is this. Do we have any basis of fact beyond the Bible as to whether or not this historic person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth actually died on the Roman cross. And then we're going to look at the evidence for what is called the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Every one of these questions actually is based on more than just, I hope so, it's actually grounded in fact. We're going to look at some of that today. It may seem a little drab and a little dreary. Hang in there. There's a couple of really cool videos. We'll keep you engaged one way or the other. But this is good stuff. Because if somebody says, oh, you just believe in that myth. You just believe in that fantasy. You'll say, uh-uh. I believe in a historical reality called Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross and rose again. And we're going to talk about that together. So before we do, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Uh, let's go before the throne of God's grace to find grace and mercy to help in a time of need, as the Bible says. Join me, please. Uh, Father, good morning and thank you for the opportunity that we've already enjoyed worshiping the person of Jesus. Father, thank you that Jesus was a real person who entered into real time, lived a real life, and we have evidence for that. And that he really died on a cross, and we have evidence for that and that he really rose again. 
Those of us here today who have Jesus in our hearts know that to be true. But there are some here today that are still questioning, wondering, and trying to make sense of this thing called Christianity, this thing called um, salvation. I pray today might be a good step in their journey towards meeting Jesus personally. Father, take what we're about to talk about and use it for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, amen, amen. So, question number one that we're going to tackle as we talk about this idea of exploring the evidence behind the case for Christ that ultimately convinced Lee Strobel of its reality is this question. Point A, did Jesus of Nazareth really exist? Now, the cool part of this is this, that historians, whether they be um, believers or non-believers, scholars, whether they be believing scholarship or unbelieving scholarship, virtually no one today doubts the reality of a historic person called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the Bible speaks often of him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each are a testimony to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, his death and his resurrection. And in there, we see a man who, by the age of 30, became a renowned rabbi, took 12 men to travel with him as his disciples, and he walked all over um, Galilee, uh, treaded the sandy hills of Galilee. He climbed the steps to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And, and he literally touched people. He literally taught people. He literally loved people. So the Bible's replete in this idea that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually lived on the face of the earth. Not only do we have those historic uh, uh, documents in the Bible, but there's also some, some cool things called genealogies. How many like genealogies? Yeah, yeah, there's something cool about that. One of these days, I'm actually going to take a little DNA sample and send it away and find out what it all looks like for me, but not today. Uh, but in the Bible, we actually have three genealogies that have been developed around this person called Jesus of Nazareth. One of those genealogies is found in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew was writing largely to the Jewish nation, and so his genealogy begins with Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. And so Father Abraham was the uh, founder of the Jewish nation. Perfect sense. So what he's doing is he's showing the lineage of Jesus back to Father Abraham. And then Matthew reveals how Jesus has a legal lineage to be the promised Davidic king. And he does this in Matthew's gospel by tracing back through Joseph's family line. Jesus is related to King David through his son Solomon through Joseph's family line. So on the one hand, we have this rather uh, complex and complete genealogy uh, in Matthew. There's also another one found in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor, so he was a man of science. And he gives to us this genealogy, but it begins with Adam this time and not Abraham. It includes Abraham, but it goes back further. And what it does is it reveals Jesus' biological lineage. And it proves to him to be the son of man or the second Adam. And he does this by tracing through Mary's family line in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it was Joseph's family line in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, he shows how David, uh, Jesus is related to King David. But this time, in Mary's line, he's related through uh, David's son Nathan, not Solomon. So, 
we have Matthew, we have Luke, and then we have one other genealogy that's connected to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and that's found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John's genealogy gives Jesus' true identity and his divine pedigree as the only Son of God, God of very God. So we have these three genealogies that are connected to this historic, historical individual by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I, I want you to consider all that's entailed in that, and then I want to ask you a question. Here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ found in the Bible. Now watch it. Here we go. Oh, okay, that one begins with Adam, I get that. And then we go on down through, oh, there's Noah, and down here's Abraham. They both kind of come together at Abraham, and then there's Judah, and Tamar, and Rahab, and Boaz, and Ruth, and David. And it kind of comes down through Solomon, and the legal line, and the biological line, there's Zerubbabel. And uh, finally, we get to Joseph and Mary, and then we connect it to God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. So these are recorded in Scripture concerning this person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me ask you this. How many people that have never lived have such a complete and compelling genealogy? How many people that have never lived have such a complete and compelling genealogy? So, so these are the biblical evidences to the reality of a historic person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But we don't just have the biblical uh, foundation. We also have extra biblical evidence as to the reality of this individual as well. Uh, and there are some that come from Jewish sources. Now, these would not be friendly to Christianity. Their intent was never to affirm Christianity. They were simply stating fact. And one of those sources is the Talmud. These are rabbinical writings. And in one of the writings in the Talmud, there's a statement about Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, it's actually written in the Aramaic, which would have been the native tongue of Jesus' day. And they record his name this way. He is Yeshua Hena Notazari. Yeshua Hena Notazari, which in Aramaic means Jesus of Nazareth. That's in rabbinical writing. That's in the Jewish writings. That's not in the Bible. And then again, uh, the famous Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus uh, mentions twice Jesus who is called the Christ in his writings called the Jewish Antiquities. Again, the Jewish sources here were not seeking to validate or substantiate Christianity. They were simply stating what they believe to be clear fact. So we have these Jewish sources, and then we actually have Roman sources as well. Now, these guys really don't want to substantiate Christianity. Again, these are historians, and they're st simply stating fact. Two of the most famous historians in, in Roman culture, uh, one was Cornelius Tacticus, and he wrote something called the Annals, and we'll actually mention him again in a minute. And there's another guy, and I love these Latin names, Gaius Suetonius Tranquilius kind of like gluteus maximus, you know? They're just cool names to say. They're just so robust. Um, so uh, he actually wrote something called The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. And both of those Roman historians made clear statements about somebody called Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, there's also a Roman governor, uh, Pliny the Younger, uh, who was Roman, uh, the governor over Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey. He said this in a letter that he wrote to a friend, he said, the Christians, which he referred to as a wretched cult eight times, 
Obviously, you get his wind as to what he thinks about them. Uh, and then he referred to Christ himself three times in that document. All that to say, biblical evidence, extra-biblical evidence, it seems to be clear that there was a historic person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, just recently, a book was written back in 2012 by a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. He is an agnostic, and he is no friend to true uh, Christianity. And he wrote a book called, Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And he went on to say this in, in the beginning of this book. Uh, Bart Ehrman methodically demolishes both the scholarly and the popular mystic uh, uh, arguments against, help me say it, Thank you, that's the word. Arguments against the existence of Jesus, marshalling evidence from within the Bible in the wider historical record of the ancient world. Uh, Urban uh, tackles the key issues that surround the mythologies associated with Jesus and the early Christian movement. So again, going back to point A, the idea, did Jesus of Nazareth truly exist? And again, evidence is overwhelming that such a person truly lived. Not just biblical evidence, but extra-biblical evidence seems uh, overwhelmingly in favor of the reality of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, um, I like the way that uh, one historian put it. Uh, this man is a believer. His name is Paul Meyer. And he said this, The total evidence is so overpowering, so absolute, that only the shallowest of intellects would dare deny Jesus' existence. I like that. Because he's kind of putting you on the spot. If you really deny it, you're the shallowest of intellects. I mean, really, you're not really looking at the evidence because the evidence is so overwhelming to the reality of this man called Jesus of Nazareth. So, the first question we asked is simply this. Did Jesus of Nazareth exist? Facts and truth, historical evidence, is, the answer is yes, Absolutely. Now, a lot of people look at this man, Jesus, as he's seen in the Bible. They believe he truly existed. As he's seen in the Bible, they say, he seems to be such a good man. He seems to be such a great teacher. And you look through the scriptures, and it's amazing what he did and how he loved, what he said and how he taught. It's utterly amazing. And so people look at Jesus, and they think, what a wonderful man. In fact, in our hometown, uh, where Bambi and I uh, grew up, South Paris, Maine, there's a Methodist church that's right in the, in the circle of the center of the town. It's an old church, been there a long time. Uh, in that church, they have three pictures hanging. And there is a picture of Gandhi, there's a picture of Martin Luther King Jr., and there's a picture of Jesus. And it says this, all these men inspire us. You see, a lot of people believe that Jesus is a good man and a great teacher. But let me ask you this. Would a good man, would a great teacher actually claim the ability to forgive sin? Would a good man or a great teacher actually claim that before Abraham existed, I was? Thousands of years before. Would a good man, would a great teacher claim to be equal with God, calling God his father? Would a good man or a great teacher who said that in three days, if you destroy this temple of my body, I will raise it again? Jesus made such outlandish claims that as C.S. Lewis put it, 
you know, you, you, can, you can write him off as a liar. You can write him off as a lunatic. But no good great man ever makes the claims that Jesus made unless he is the Lord of all. So it's important to understand that Jesus wasn't just another good guy because of the claims that he made in the Scripture. So, point A, number one, if you will, did Jesus of Nazareth actually exist? Yes, and we have lots of evidence, biblical and extra-biblical, to prove that. Now the challenge gets greater. Did Jesus of Nazareth actually die on the cross? Did Jesus of Nazareth actually die on the cross? And again, most people don't have a real problem with this, this reality. Uh, due to the fear of the Romans and the fear and jealousy of the religious leaders, even the religious fervor of some concerned about Jesus' claims, which they saw as blasphemy, there is very little doubt in most people's minds that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans at the instigation of the Jewish religious establishment. Again, believing scholarship, unbelieving scholarship, most people don't doubt the reality there was a real man called Jesus of Nazareth and that that real man called Jesus of Nazareth actually was put to death by the Romans. Now, again, we have all kinds of obviously biblical data uh, you can turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They all speak about the last hours of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's all kinds of biblical data which backs up the reality of his death. But beyond that, we actually have some extra-biblical sources, one of which, again, is the Roman historian uh, Cornelius Tacticus in his writings called The Annals. He wrote in 64 A.D., which would have made it contemporary to the Apostle Paul's writings. Like his, his writings of First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Those were written in the late 50s, 60s in that time frame. So in a contemporary time frame, about 30 years removed from the actual death of Jesus, we have this Roman historian making this statement. Christicus, Christicus, the founder of the name Christians had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. That's a Roman source stating the reality that such a man named Jesus of Nazareth was killed and put to death by the Romans. So we have the biblical data, we have extra-biblical sources, uh, but we also now have modern medical science to confirm the reality that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, did die. Uh, in the movie, we had this statement by Dr. Alexander Methrel. In fact, let me just show it to you. It makes it, makes it more fun this way. So forgive me for making you travel all the way out here, but when someone rings me up and says he wants to dispute the most significant event in human history, I it's important that we do it face to face, don't you? Yeah, that's fine. I, uh, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Right, uh, so we're uh, just doing some research on the effect of stress on the hormone levels in mice, which is an ongoing project of ours. But I assure you, you shall have my undivided attention. <clears throat> okay, I'm, then I'm just going to jump right in. Um, so my line of attack is this. The reason the eyewitnesses were able to see Jesus after Golgotha is because he never died on the cross. 
Because if he doesn't die, there's no resurrection. Right? That's right. So, so whether or not Jesus himself or, uh, or someone else took him off of the cross early, or if he fakes his own death, it doesn't matter. It completely discounts every aspect of the resurrection. Right, the swoon theory. Yeah, but he passed out. He didn't die. I'm afraid there's a long line of skeptics in front of you with that hypothesis. Including only a billion Muslims the world over who also don't believe that Jesus died on the cross because the Quran says so. With all due respect to Islam, the Quran was written six centuries after Christ. I prefer my historical sources a bit closer to actual I understand, but, but, yeah. but you concede that it's possible. Uh, Mr. Strobel, I am a medical doctor and a scientist. I have seen a great many strange phenomena in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But the swim theory is rubbish. <laughs> Rubbish, That's a, is that a, a medical opinion? <laughs> you know, it is, actually. Um, swan theorists tend to skim over the fact that Jesus was flogged prior to his crucifixion. Do you know what happens in a Roman flogging? Um, yeah, the person is lashed with a whip. No, not lashed. Scourged and pummeled savagely. You see, the, the Gallite whip is braided with metal balls and bone fragments. The flesh on Jesus's back would have been shredded. The very muscles and sinews themselves laid open to exposure. The flogging itself would have left Jesus in critical condition for massive blood loss, which is why he collapsed under the weight of the cross that the Romans made him carry through town. Okay, so is it possible that Jesus survives being spiked to the cross? Oh, yes, you could survive it, but it's child's play compared to what comes next in a crucifixion. Slow, agonizing death by asphyxiation. <sighs> Mr. Strobel, the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the best attested events in the ancient world. There is no historical evidence of anyone, anywhere, ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Oh. And, if you will, the final nail in the coffin of <laughs> theory is this. When the soldiers thrust their spear between Jesus' ribs, do you know what came out? Blood and water. Which we now know is a description of pericardial effusion as a result of death by asphyxiation. And this is not a condition anyone could fake. And so to answer your question, yes, it is my medical opinion that Jesus Christ died on that cross. Doctor? But, but, but... I, got a, I have a real problem with most of the experts that I've talked to here. Which is? Uh, which is that most of them are not impartial, and if I'm going to take a guess, I would say that you are not either. And you would be correct, sir. Though I have learned that most impartial travelers who undertake this journey rarely remain so. However, I can refer you to one of the most impartial sources that I know. Would you trust the Journal of the American Medical Association? Of course, it is a stellar scientific journal. You and I will admit that. On the physical death of Jesus. <clears throat> Clearly the weight of the medical and historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Doc, I gotta tell you, you're, uh, you're not telling me what I hope to hear today.
Point A, did Jesus of Nazareth truly exist? Is there a historic man by that name who truly existed? And virtually all uh, people, historians and, and scholars alike, agree that such a man existed. Again, as he said, the, there is virtually no other historic incident in the past that ever happened that is as well documented as the crucifixion of that man called Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, if you would be interested in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association's um, data, a copy of it, I have some copies up here. You're more than welcome to have them. Uh, they're very compelling and very well written. Now it gets hard. It's one thing to say the man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth existed. It's another thing to say that he was killed, that he died. But it's quite another to move to that third step. And that third step is point C, did Jesus of Nazareth come back from the dead? A lot of people lived. A lot of people died. But no one has come back from the dead as he himself predicted he would, except for Jesus Christ. What evidence do we have to back that truth? Well, we're going to kind of look into that quickly in the next few moments. Uh, I, I want to get to the end because the end is kind of the pinnacle uh, of where I've been leading. And so, what do we have as far as evidence? So, evidence number one, if you will, we have the empty tomb. The empty tomb itself helps us to understand that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Let me explain. Matthew 27 Verses 62 through 66 say this. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Now, the day of preparation would have been Friday in advance of the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So this is taking place on Saturday morning. The next day, after the day of preparation, Friday, now Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pontius Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that that imposter, notice how they referred to Jesus, while he was alive, after three days, he said, I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and then tell the people, he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. And so they went and they made the tomb secure in two means. Number one, by sealing it, the stone itself, and then secondly, by setting a guard. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were scared to death that somehow, some way, that what Jesus said might actually happen, or that his disciples would make it happen. And it's interesting, in their fear, in their their fright over this potential reality, they end up giving to us unwittingly one of the greatest proofs for the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me explain. So they began by sealing the stone. What they would do is they would take the stone that was over the tomb where Jesus was laid and they would have secured it, not unlike what you see here. They would have lashed it with ropes, and then a signet, a big chunk of wax, would be put on the rope, and then a signet of a Roman official would be emblazoned in it, 
And what they did was they now took over this piece of ground as Roman property. What they were now saying is this now falls under the jurisdiction and law of Rome. Anybody who violates this now has the full weight of Roman authority they'll have to deal with. And so they sealed the tomb. Now, it was the religious leaders who took the guard to seal the tomb. Let me ask you something. Do you think they're going to walk up and go, "Mm, I think it was that one. Okay, let's just seal that one. Yeah, no way. These guys were, were frightened that, they, that something might happen. So I can guarantee you that before they sealed the stone, they rolled it back, went in, and examined the body that was in there. They went in there, and they unwrapped it to make sure this is the Jesus of Nazareth who said he would rise from the dead. Then they would have wrapped him back up, and then they would have gone out, and they would have sealed the stone. So you see what they did? They validated for us the reality that Jesus not only died, but he was dead in that tomb. And they validated that it was his body before they sealed it. That's what they did. I, I love what this man said. Uh, his name is Henry Summer Maine. Not just a cool last name, but a neat guy. He said this, seals in antiquity were actually considered a mode of authentication. So little do they know that by demanding this form of security, they were actually validating the reality of the dead body of Jesus in that tomb. So first, the sealing of the stone. And then secondly, they set a guard. And the guard was was a Roman guard, a Roman custodial unit. It was generally made up of 16 military men, each of whom was heavily armed and highly trained. And what they would have done is they would have gone to the tomb after it was secured and sealed with Rome's seal. These are Roman soldiers with Rome's seal. Then they would have actually had four men standing guard, 12 laying on the ground, fanned out into defensive posture. So if anybody were to sneak up, they would be alerted. And then every four hours, the four guys standing would get down on the ground and four more fresh troops would take the place. And so this thing was extremely, extremely secure. All that to say this. What they did for us was this. The seal authenticated that Jesus' body was indeed in the tomb. And the Roman guard made it laughable that 11 fishermen could rush them, overpower the guard, and steal the body of Jesus. And so they made it plain that they didn't do anything. The guys didn't steal anything. And they didn't take Jesus out and say, oh, look, he's risen from the dead. You have, we have, the Roman uh, or the, uh, the Pharisees of Jesus' day to thank for this wonderful truth that validates that the dead body of Jesus was in that tomb. So, the empty tomb ultimately tells us that Jesus did come back from the dead. But not just the empty tomb, but secondly, the reality of the lack of challenge found in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, this takes place on the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover, which is when Jesus Christ was was crucified. 50 days after that. And so it is a high feast time in Israel. It is a pilgrimage feast. It's called the Feast of Weeks or Shabbat. Which meant that much of Israel had come to Jerusalem for the festival observance. It was in this time of festivities with thousands upon thousands of pilgrims present at this site that the apostle Peter stands up and he says the following words. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you know, this Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan of, and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Jews and Romans, Jews and Romans, Jews and Romans. God raised him up, loosing the, uh, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here's Peter, throngs of thousands, and he stands up and he just, with great boldness, declares, you crucified him through the hands of lawless men, the religious Pharisees, the Romans. And so Paul, or Peter, is really bold, really bold, kind of in-your-face bold, but the only thing louder than Peter's speech is the deafening silence of the religious leaders. It's interesting. Why didn't they offer a rebuttal? Why didn't the lawyers and the theologians who were on their side, men of great learning and skill, why didn't they debate this simple fisherman? They could have talked him down. They could have confronted him. They could have squashed this myth right here, right now. But they didn't say a word. What about the Romans? The breaking of the seal meant that this was an offense of Roman law. Where are they? They're nowhere to be seen. And so the reality is this. The reason the Jews didn't confront Peter and the reason that the Roman authorities didn't arrest him is because the Jews had no evidence to debate and the Romans had no proof that would hold up in court. Why? Well, let's ask the people who were there that day. You see, Peter was preaching to the crowds, and Peter went on to say this. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, how many souls? 3,000 people came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were only a 15-minute walk from the tomb site. Only 15 minutes. They could have easily gone down and investigated this. But 3,000 people who were, who were contemporaries of that situation said, it's true, it's true, it's true. The empty tomb, thank you for securing it, validating the dead body. Jesus was there. Thank you for putting the Romans there because when it emptied, it wasn't those disciples who did it. The lack of challenge, where is everybody? The Romans, where are the Pharisees? Where are the religious leaders? They're nowhere to be found because they had no proof to challenge the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have this very pr profound statement of eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses, and this is the Apostle Paul talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Notice what he says, and this is, this is good, this is very important. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here we go. This is what he preached. For I deliver to you as of first importance. That means this is paramount. What I also received, and this is it, that Jesus Christ, that, Je that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, this is Peter, and to the remaining twelve, and then he appeared to more than what? 500 brothers. Maybe some sisters in there too. I don't know. At one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Now, he made an audacious claim that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. An audacious claim. And he says, not only did I see it, not only did Peter see it, but there are 500 people who saw him alive. Only a few have died. You see, it's one thing to make a a statement that that could be considered to be outlandish if anybody else who was there to validate it was dead. You know, dead men tell no tales. It's one thing to say 500 saw them, but you know, they all died. And so I just wish you could call them and talk to them because I saw it, I really did. Take my word for it. But what he's saying here is, don't take my word for it. I've got nearly 500 people that you could talk to who literally saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Here's my contacts list. You want to call him? This is what he's doing. He's validating it. Don't just trust me. Trust the eyes of the other people who saw him as well, Peter and others. Wow. You know, this statement of his could really trip him up. It's a bit like me uh, kind of making this statement. You know, um, Bambi and I uh, really enjoy living here in Southern Maryland, and every once in a while we invite down some friends to join us, especially people who have a hard time getting away and just relaxing. So uh, every once in a while, Bambi and I will invite down Tom and Giselle, and, you know, we'll just hang out with them. You know, Tom Brady, his wife Giselle, are the great people. You know, we're all Patriots fans. It's great. We talk about cool stuff. And so, you know, they're, they're such important people up in the Boston area. So we invite them to come down here in Southern Maryland where nobody knows who they are, right? And, and so, you know, we go and hang out. Elisha watches their three kids, and it's really awesome. And we have this really good time together. And in fact, you know, this picture was taken this, this last fall just before he went off to the uh, final games of the, before the Super Bowl. It was a great, great time. Now, the only problem with my audacious claim is there is one person right here that you could walk up to and say, hey, Bambi, Bill said, and she's going to say, he said what? And so what she's going to do is she's going to poke a hole in my story, and it's going to prove to be invalid. But Peter said, or Paul said, not only did Peter see him, not only did I see him, but 500, most of which are still alive today, saw him, and you can ask them as well. Just how strong is the case behind the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The empty tomb, the lack of challenge, the eyewitnesses, and lastly, we'll end with this, transformed lives. Transformed lives. I love this part. To me, this is one of the most powerful proofs to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Think about it. After Jesus was crucified, his disciples were discouraged, depressed, and they deeply doubted. They had scattered. But after a very short period of time, they abandoned their occupations. They committed themselves to spreading a very specific message, and it's this. It's the good news. Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, died for our sins, rose again, and he wants you to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him as the leader of your life. Every single one of his followers, except for John, who died of old age, was martyred for this message. Think about this. They were martyred for this message. Now you say, well, a lot of people today die for their message. Yeah, there's a lot of militant martyrs out there blowing themselves up and other people for a cause. But these men were there. They knew if this was true or if this was a lie, and nobody dies for a lie. And these men were willing to die, not to kill others because they didn't agree with them, 
but they died giving up their own lives, loving people, seeking to connect them to God through this wonderful message called the gospel. The only plausible explanation is Christ has risen. Christ has risen indeed. These truths were so profound that it led Lee Strobel to place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When you became a Christian, I freaked out. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, I was scared. Um, And I felt like that I needed to, uh, to save you. And so I decided to set out to prove this was all a big con. And so that's what I've been doing all this time. I just had to prove this whole thing wrong. But I couldn't. The evidence for your faith, it's more overwhelming than I could have ever imagined. But it wasn't just the evidence, okay? stop loving me. You never gave up on me. And I think because of that, God didn't either. <laughs> what? I mean, I don't I don't think God gave up on you either, but what, what are you saying? Uh, <laughs> I can't even fathom what I'm going to say. I believe. I do. Let me just show you. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Mm-hmm. to those who believe in his name. And what does that mean? That <laughs> means believe plus receive equals become. receive what do I what's what's the protocol for uh, for that there's no wrong way or right way just you you talk to God Mm -hmm. you tell him your heart Mm -hmm. and and we do that right now I mean shouldn't we go to church Mm -mm, mm -mm. (laughs) right here right now this is church okay No 
idea what I'm doing. But I cannot ignore the evidence. And I don't know everything. Uh, I, I never will know everything. Um, but I, I know enough. And I believe it. I believe you. And I'm sorry for what I've, what I've put my wife through. Um, what I put my family through, uh, but I believe you're real, and I don't know what comes next. I don't know. I don't know what it means. I just know that I want. I want that. I want. I want whatever's next. I want that. So let's do that. are tough. First service just couldn't stop clapping at that moment. They thought it was great. I love it, uh, watching that segment. You know, uh, I don't know what your hang-up might be when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, but this much we know from historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. The Bible says that he was God of very God who came into this world through the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinlessly perfect life. He lived the life we were meant to live, but couldn't, but he did for us, and that he was willing to die the death that we deserve to die on the cross. That's us that should have died there, not him. That he was buried and that he arose again the third day. Today he reigns at the right hand of God the Father, inviting people into relationship with himself. That's the message of the good news of the gospel. Our sin can be forgiven. Our guilt can be gone. We can be brought into a relationship with the God of the universe, and we can walk with him every day. I don't know what your hang-up may be, but let me just say this. There'll never be enough evidence for those who don't want to believe. But there's more than enough evidence for anybody who's willing to believe. I'm going to end our time right now with a word of prayer. If today's the day that you want to embrace the re historic reality and the truth and make Jesus Christ the Lord and leader of your life, I want to invite you to join me in this prayer. And you can walk out of here today having your sins forgiven and your guilt cleansed. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's pray together. Again, uh, for those today who have yet to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, you can approach the living God something like this. Oh God, oh God, I want to become your child. Oh God, I want to know that my sins can all be forgiven. I want to know that my conscience can be cleansed from all the guilt that I carry. Oh God, I want to become your child. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He entered into this world through the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
I believe he lived a sinlessly perfect life, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he was buried and he rose again the third day. I believe, oh God, I believe. But right now, with an act of my will, I receive Jesus Christ to be the Lord and the leader of my life. Lord God, I believe and I receive. And right now I claim the promise that I can become your child. Thank you, O God, for rescuing me, saving me. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. If today is the day you've received Jesus, I would love to have a conversation with you. Help you take that next step, whatever that means, as he was saying. And I'd love to help you down that journey. The Lord bless you. Have an awesome week. And Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you.